On this episode, Scott and I welcome Dick Wilkins, Principal Technology Liaison at Phoenix Technologies, to the show to discuss UEFI and the digital supply chain. Stay tuned. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Welcome, everyone, to Below the Surface, the firmware and supply chain podcast. This is episode number 16. Mr. Scott Shefferman is here with me. Scott, welcome. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me, as always. Looking forward to this one. It should be uh, good to kind of dive down deep and explore the world of UEFI with our guest. Absolutely. I like to think like I, I do podcasts and I try and know things. And when I don't know things, I, I talk to people who are smarter than me and certainly having those people on the show today. And before we dig into it, Scott, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Below the surface listeners can learn more about Eclipsium by visiting Eclipsium.com forward slash go. There you will find the ultimate guide to supply chain security, an on-demand webinar I presented called Unraveling Digital Supply Chain Threats and Risks a paper on the relationship between ransomware in the supply chain and a customer case study with DigitalOcean. If you're interested in seeing our product in action, you can sign up for a demo, all that at eclipsium.com go. I also did a really fun webinar on setting up your own hardware security testing lab. And uh, that is out there like on our YouTube uh, and on our website. So make sure you check that out. It was a lot of fun. Dick Wilkins is with Phoenix Technologies, an independent firmware supplier, has over 40 years of security firmware and OS experience with organizations including HP, Microsoft, Amazon, and Digital Equipment Corporation. He holds an MS in computer science from the National Technological University and PhD from Nova South Eastern University. He recently retired from teaching computer science and cybersecurity topics at Thomas College in Maine. Uh, Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you. Also, did you serve on a couple of forums that are like very important to the state and future of UEFI? Is that correct? Yes. Um, I, I'm, my job with Phoenix is to represent Phoenix in a lot of different technology organizations, but in particular with UEFI, I'm on the board of directors. Um, I lead the security response team from the UEFI forum. I also work on the SBOM working group um, and the the industry communications working group. Mm. We do marketing kinds of things for the forum. Right. Fantastic. You and I uh, first met about five years ago when you came on the Paul Security Weekly Show. So it's nice to have you back on here podcasting uh, with myself uh, and, of course, Scott. So, Dick, I want to talk about the evolution of you, EFI. Like I said, it's been five years since we last uh, chatted. What are some of the major advancements uh, that have happened, let's say, in the past five years with you, EFI? At this point, the... um specification for UEFI has been pretty stable. We've added some additional features and capabilities that, you know, just enabling modern platforms. 
um, and done some security work here and there. But it really is um, refining and st stabilizing the specification um, more than major new innovations. Um, I guess before we talked the last time, we already had done the secure boot thing and uh, and all of that. Um, and it's really just been improving that and providing um, more security for our uh, users of the specification. That's awesome. Um, so I guess you EFI today, uh, you mentioned SBOM. Uh, I know that there were some efforts to build into some of the specifications, um, the SBOM inside of you EFI. Is there, is there work happening in that arena? Absolutely. We have a sub team working under the, um, the specification team that um, is exploring how do we do SBOMs for firmware? Um, how do we make that happen? What goes in them, et cetera? And do we need to make any specification changes to support that? Um, I think the way we're leaning at this point is to more provide guidance from the, uh, from the organization on you know, how to do it, what should be in it, essentially, um, how to deliver those kinds of things versus actually changing the specification to require specific features. That's not a done deal. It's an active discussion item. Um, I guess the current hot topic is a lot of folks would like to see SBOM type information embedded right in the firmware binary. Mm. Uh, and the stuff that the compiler can add at compile time, or it can be put as a wrapper around bi binary images that are provided as part of the uh, firmware that's installed on a system. Um, there's a lot of value in doing that, in that you don't have to wait, um, you know, and, and or try and find a large SBOM. Um, data structure out in some database someplace on the web or et cetera. Um, you can just extract your firmware binary and look and a lot of the, the information about who uh, who created this particular piece of uh, firmware, uh, what version is it, um, et cetera, et cetera, is just embedded right there. But of course, firmware uh, is loaded into a, um, restricted resource, um, some kind of non-volatile memory on the motherboard, and there's not a lot of it available. So we can't use up a lot of space with a huge SBOM. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that um, we'll also provide a you know standard SPDX, Cyclone DX um, type uh, SBOM structure that's you know downloadable in some manner or another. Uh, that has all the gory details. But in particular, in the firmware space, it seems like it would be also a good idea to include some base information right in the firmware image. Right, because this it's not really just one SBOM necessarily, because the there's the base UEFI, and then folks like yourselves at Phoenix customize it, and then you're handing it off to an OEM. Uh, so there's there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen that let's talk about that in respects to the SBOM. Is it being envisioned that there's one SBOM that everyone updates and kind of attests to or are there are separate ones as it passes hands? Um, 
I think where we're headed with this is um, then an OEM will provide an SBOM for the firmware that's on the system they sell. Mm-hmm. Um, that percolates through the entire supply chain and has material added to it or collected by the OEM from the folks you mentioned, uh, the, the the OEM themselves, the firmware provider, uh, the original open source that underlies a lot of implementations. Uh, but also more importantly, I think, is the, um, the fact that a lot of firmware contains pre-compiled binaries that come from chip vendors, um, you know, the Intels and the AMDs and the ARMs of the world, um, you know, management code and device code, uh, depending on the kind of system it is, you may have uh, BMC firmware and other things that are all part of the firmware image. And all of that needs to be included for the SBOM of the platform. So uh, it's not just even just the supply chain for the traditional firmware uh, that's that's modified and extended by each layer, but all the also these other chunks of binaries that get provided by all sorts of vendors. There are dozens of them at least, and mm. the source code for each of those dozens comes from many places, including open source. Um, so it's it's not easy. There's a lot there. Oh. And I think the earliest S-bombs that are get delivered are likely to include just a high level, hey, we got this binary blob from Intel for this particular chip that's on this motherboard. Um, if you need more details, it's it came from Intel and it's this version provided to us on this date. And that's all we've got. If you need more details, you need to go to Intel. Mm-hmm. But Hopefully down the road, we'll be able to get to the point where Intel supplies an SBOM for their firmware, blob, their their binary blob, essentially, um, that can be um, parsed by anyone and see the whole structure of every piece of firmware that's on the machine. That'll be a glorious day, Scott. Yeah, question there. So, And I think you're starting to maybe hit on it indirectly, but I'll, I'll try to draw it out, which is, um, we hear a lot when we work with IT suppliers all up and down the IT supply chain that there's a tremendous amount of concern about um, SBOMs exposing intellectual property, uh, trade secrets, if you will, um, by virtue of the fact that they're supplying everything in the SBOM. So in that last example you gave, um, it behooves Intel to make you maybe have to work for a little bit harder to go to Intel to find out what's in that sub SBOM, if you will, or that subcomponent SBOM. Do you, do you, uh, what's your read of that when you talk with, with folks like chip manufacturers and OEMs, both like on both sides of this coin in terms of how concerned they are, or maybe some of them aren't in terms of intellectual property being disclosed via this whole SBOM apparatus? That is definitely a concern with a lot of folks. Um, and, uh, my take well, let me back up and say, um, I think the end user that purchases a platform has a right to have openness. And they should be able to get at least the file names and versions of every piece of code that's source code that's in there. Um, 
And yes, there may be some need and some level to obfuscate some detail to prevent the sharing of intellectual property. But basically, if you bought the machine, you have a right to know what's in it, um, down to a fairly low level of detail. Now, that opens up the possibility of maybe that level of detail in an SBOM is only available via an OEM to their certified customers, the people who actually bought hardware from them. Um, and they're not just published publicly for anybody to evaluate, including the, uh, the bad guys out there in the world. Um, so, but if I bought the thing, I wanna know what's in it. Um, and I think most of the folks that are resistant at this point are just concerned um, that they might expose something they didn't intend to, which is um, intellectual property um, that they would want to secure. Um, and that's perfectly reasonable. But I think as we study this and dig into it in more detail and understand what's out there, that it's likely that uh, OEMs and chip suppliers and device firmware suppliers and that kind of thing will discover that they're really not exposing much in the way of intellectual property by releasing a, a detailed SBOM. I like it. Um, Go ahead. I, yeah, just one, one other question. I It's, you know, always curious someone what you, in your shoes would think about it, which is, let's say we walk the dog, we could snap our fingers and say, SBOM is being implemented perfectly. Like all the vendors, all the exposure, perfect structure. It's already lets you say like um, loaded on the firmware uh, automatically during you know when it's being compiled, uh, and everybody has perfect information on the device that they're sitting in front of. My question to you is like, what what does the industry feel? Because you know I I'm in a kind of myopic cyber world where I'm worried about threat actors and bad cyber things. But what's the broader kind of vision for the value of what SBOM? Uh, yeah, has for the end user for the for the customer, whether that's an enterprise or just an individual at home. Why are we doing this thing? Right, like what's the actual value in doing this, or what are some of the use cases where there would be a win if we had perfect SBOM? Well, that's a one of the why bother uh, question is a valid one, but I think an important one to make clear to folks: if you understand what's in the computer that you bought. The firmware that's on it, um, you can tell potentially whether that uh, system is vulnerable to known cyber attacks out there. Um, this is where the VEX database comes in that can relate SBOM data to known vulnerabilities and automate that process. Um, it's there's an old joke um, that many, many years ago at, in the, the um, Ma Bell, the old telephone system, thought that, it, that every woman in the United States, and note I quote that, there's really, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, at the time that was politically correct. It isn't now, but every woman would have to be a phone operator because um, it's so complex and to make long distance calls across the country, everybody be plugging into plug boards. Uh, and it's kind of that way here as well, is right now we're looking at the number of vulnerabilities, the number of systems, everything else that seems like every employee at your company is going to end up in your 
um, PCER, your uh, product security team, because uh, just following up on all the potential vulnerabilities from your customers is an impossible task. Uh, there's the rate of queries from customers of, hey, I bought this thing from you. Is this firmware vulnerable? Uh, do I need an update? Do I need a patch to this? I've heard this terrible thing in the press. Um, and to staff up, to answer all those questions from more and more aware end user customers is, is an impossible task. So we have to automate things. And part of that automation is finding out what's actually in the firmware on this particular system. Then if we can publish something like VEX the, the, that's been proposed, a database of vulnerability information that indicates that um, this particular uh, firmware, piece of firmware is vulnerable, or more importantly, I guess, which ones aren't, and we can rate the, relate those together automatically, then an end user can just do a, a simple, you know, web-based data query and get the answer they need is, am I vulnerable, am I not vulnerable, without having a huge hundreds or thousands of uh, persons on your PSERC team answering the questions one by one. Dick, recently I did uh, a study of these Android devices that were being delivered to end users and the devices already had malware on them. Somewhere in the supply chain, there was an issue and someone was able sure. to put malware. So it's, it's different from vulnerability, obviously, right? Now there's some kind of either malicious code or backdoor. What, what can we do in the UEFI space to uh, protect against this particular problem? Um. I haven't seen anything like that in the UEFI space to, to date. Mm, but that's good. on the other hand, uh, the uh, this idea of an SBOM, uh, identifying specifically what's in the system and where did it come from, essentially eliminates that possibility um, if you know, if you really can verify that the th that the S bomb is correct and honest and detailed in there, and and you can match it up with the binary image, has information that points back to the supplier information that can be then verified. Yeah, using software. I I like that attestation, right? That this firmware is made up of these different components. These various companies and or vendors have uh, attested to that. And so if there does, if there is a backdoor, some kind of issue that's not vulnerability related, we can still use SBOM to trace that back to a responsible party uh, and sure. hopefully find it in all things that have been deployed. Absolutely. That's, uh, that, that, that's one of the other positive benefits from doing SBOM. Mm. Of course, then we have to remove it, but <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> it's a different, it's a different podcast altogether. <laughs> Let's call it. Um, yeah. Dick, what's the the uh, talk about the relationships um, from your perspective, which, which I think is a very unique perspective between you know you've got uh, the chip manufacturers until AMD, you've got folks like Phoenix, like yourself, uh, and then you're passing stuff off to OEMs. Let's talk a little bit about the cooks in the kitchen and the the roles they play, um, because it, ultimately we get what these cooks are have made as a meal, and that's what's you know served to us at the by the end user. Yeah, it's. Uh uh, 
I recently, and I'll point your viewers to the uh, UEFI website under the education tab. There's a papers section, and it's currently at the top of the list because it's new. It's a paper that I wrote with several of my co-workers in the industry from various co competing companies about mm -hmm. this whole supply chain issue. And I refer you there for the gory details. But mm. at the high level here, it it, it really is a flow um, from the you know, the chip makers and the hardware device makers, the firmware that they provide to the the firmware developers, let's put it that way. Um, and note, I want to say here right up front, one problem we've had in the industry is we used to call this boot firmware on computers um, BIOS. And it's that's a really easy to say term and a lot of people in the industry still use it today mm. uh, but it's obviously a misnomer bios hasn't existed on computers for 20 30 years <laughs> depending on uh, you know the, how you term the the um the, the development but anyway um correct more correctly we call it platform firmware, and people have now started calling it well, I want to get rid of that BIOS for letter acronym. Let me change it to UEFI. So it's UEFI firmware. Well, UEFI firmware is an interface specification, not an implementation. There are many proprietary and open source implementations of the UEFI specification. Uh, obviously, the most prevalent in clients and servers out there um, in the uh, x86 space and more and more in the ARM space. Um, and and we're fully support long soon and risk five as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, is UEFI, there's firmware that complies with that standard. But um, there are the Tianacore EDK2 um, open source implementation. There's Core Boot, mm -hmm. U Boot. Linux boot, um, and a bunch of proprietary implementations that have little to do with each other and have completely different code bases. That um, So I just want to make it clear to everybody that that we need, need to avoid falling into the trap of saying UEFI firmware. It's that one thing developed by this one group of people, this one supply chain. It's a multi-headed <laughs> monster. Mm. <laughs> that, I think so, there's hundreds of components in there, right? Like subcomponents inside one UEFI uh, implementation. Well, yeah, and different sets yeah, of components. Coreboot, I think, originally started on the basis of UEFI, but branched off and is like much deviated from that the UEFI standard, right? And I, I'm, I'm not um, so well versed in the histories of mm -hmm. the various versions all the way back, but. Um, yeah, it, it it's it's just there are many implementations out there, and we need to be very careful, particularly uh, when dealing with the the public and the general press that are not technically savvy necessarily, to call them one thing and have you know everybody um, pile on in a negative way mm. a particular group. But when it isn't their stuff at all, it's not it's not their responsibility. So that said, up front, 
there are many pieces, as we've talked about before. The silicon providers provide special initialization code for their processors and possibly microcode updates for their processors. Uh, there's management engine kind of things that helps manage their processors and control power and other behaviors of their processors. All that's microcode and macro um, code that's provided by the chip vendors. And today, most of that's um, a binary blob, like I say, which we have no visibility to. Um, we're hoping to change that over time and allow them to expose more with the SBOM. But uh, anyway, it's it's those pieces, plus all the device firmware for disk drives and uh, network adapters and um, host bus adapters for fancy um, storage networks. And just it is an endless variety of that kind of thing that's sometimes included in the firmware image. Mm -hmm. And so then we have the implementation of the uh, the it, the most common. So I'll use it as the example is the Tiano Core EDK2 open source, which was originally developed many years ago by uh, Intel uh, to support the EFI before the Unified Forum was created uh, to support this effort um, and commit uh, and donated to the open source essentially. Um, and now it's a large project that's managed by a whole lot of people that underlies a, a lot of the implementations. Then we have the independent firmware vendors. It used to be IBVs for independent BIOS vendors, mm. um, but that that's again a misnomer. So we mm. don't we call ourselves independent firmware vendors now. Um, that we take it, fix bugs, customize it add our own value add to improve um, the flexibility and provide features that the OEMs want from us, et cetera. Also, some large OEMs, particularly in the server space, may have their own development teams in-house that do the same job that an independent firmware vendor does um, right. for their specialized products that they deem it worth their while to have their own. Um, firmware developers, and they may take the Tiano core source, or they may do their own thing, um, or they may have taken an early version. Apple is the example of that. Uh, Apple took the early, an early, early, early version of EFI, um, the, the stuff that was handed over to the open source, and modified it extensively to fit their environment. And um, it's still if they you know EFI standard and they participate in the UEFI working group, but it, they have their own proprietary code base that has diverged significantly. Mm. Uh, I, so and, I have a question for you. So uh, against all of that context, right? Many vendors, each with their own customized implementations, features, even maybe security configuration settings for some of these things. In your world, what do you see as like, like not just your world, but you personally, where do you see the top kind of cyber threat or cyber impact potential scenarios that we have today? And then kind of going forward as we have these chip wars, a race to quantum, IT sanctions against certain nation states, this, this chip area is becoming like a battleground, right? Some people say it's already like a, the virtual World War III has already begun and you look towards certain vendors as having asymmetrical advantages um, in that context of warfare, cyber warfare, for, for lack of better words. So we're like, wh what are the pressing cyber or risk challenges you see today 
And then what are you worried about in the next couple of years going forward? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I I don't see the chip wars going anywhere near that far at this point. I, I we may be headed that way. I'm not sure, but I see that the most common vulnerabilities um, or things that are actually attacked right now um, are, I, I guess, the most common. Vulnerability that gets pointed at firmware has has been honestly in bootloaders. <laughs> mm. It's it's the actually OS code. Um, the um, that there we have invalidated um, so many grub loaders at this point that we're running out of space to um, you know sort of cancel certifi certificates for um, grub loaders. And then on top of that, with the recent um, widely known in the press situation with Black Lotus, that essentially was a Windows loader issue. Um, so the again, we're into the software space, not in, so much into firmware. But this is a firmware talk. So let's go a step down uh, and I would say that the largest um, a, attack surface that's been successfully compromised to date have been um, OEM and IBV modifications or improvements or extensions that weren't well thought out um, or well designed. Most, and, mostly uh, set think, set, var set variable calls, <laughs> right? That's really what it comes down to. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's things like, uh, well, you know, there are things that are currently out there that I really can't talk about right now. But, you know, it's it's add ons and, and enhancements and features that people try and add to the base firmware to make it better for the customers. And that's mm. I'm all for that. But um, as the folks at CISA called us out recently on um we as an industry of firmware developers at all of those levels in the supply chain need to be very careful that we're using um, uh, secure uh, design practices and implementation practices on all of our firmware. Um, generally, the industry has been very good on that, but um, it's we're not there. It's not as way and secure by default also is a, is important. I think we're pretty good on that. But again, we're never perfect. And when you're not perfect, there's opportunities. And of course, we never can be 100% perfect. But uh, the better we get, the less vulnerabilities we give to the bad guys to, to attack us. So, yeah, one, and one thing that I noticed when I was uh, speaking to folks from Intel, was and I, I believe you know Dick, you at Phoenix are probably in the same boat that you design and develop like your piece of it, and you put security features in there, and then you hand it off to the like next link in the chain, as it were. Sometimes that those security features aren't implemented correctly or not implemented at all, and we don't want to get into a situation where there's finger pointing. But I guess what uh, advocacy do you do to work with OEMs to go? You should use this security feature in this way and not change it because then bad things could happen. Yeah, the, you know, I, this, we work with our OEM customers very closely and we provide on-site help to sit with their staff and mm -hmm. we do covered use of their code when, when they let us. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and 
really are working very closely with them. Um, also, we, you know, this is not a sales job for Phoenix, and I don't want to make it that. But sure. We provide a bunch of services out there uh, that you know, add on features that where we'll do pen testing and security testing and code reviews and that kind of thing that go for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go well beyond that kind of thing. But I think the other firmware vendors are probably doing the same thing. But uh, anyway. Yeah, it it has to be a collaborative effort, right? And I think we've we've seen where, you know, that falls down um, in certain cases where, you know, whoever's downstream is uh, their implementation uh, didn't consider all the security uh, use cases, right? I think you mentioned an example, Dick, about the, it was on these specific systems. I wish I brought up the article, but these systems that were like an instant boot Linux was the goal, um, mm-hmm. and it was the the image that you could swap out for the splash screen that was one of the attack vectors. I, I think that's a yeah. A, I won't go into any details because sure. a lot of that is still um, you know still embargo and potential potential zero day kind of thing. But uh, yeah, there, this was a, an OEM add on that um just you know was wasn't well thought out and and it turns out uh once it was brought to the fore uh that gee uh, a lot of people made the same mistake uh they decided to put up splash screen uh capabilities during boot and decided that they wanted more flexibility than the default that was provided by the firmware vendors so they just pulled down an open source rendering uh package and grabbed any uh, for, uh any image off the disk and and put it up on and the splash screen and that open source tool was uh that rendered the images was vulnerable and nobody checked it nobody reviewed it and nobody tested it until it got out into the field and oops <laughs> oh, the, some security researchers thank goodness and not you know uh, um not the bad guys um went ahead and found the found the problem and reported in and it's in the process of getting fixed mm. yeah i would like to if i could just sure. along those lines i want to give you an, a real example of the complexity of the supply chain and um and the difficulties with putting uh particular you know, embargo limits and uh, announcing, you know, vulnerabilities, et cetera. And there's some of the issues we deal with Mm. very quickly. um, I guess uh, something like six or eight weeks ago, um, a security researcher notified the open source Tiano core group that they had been doing, I believe, just code reviews Mm -hmm. and had found uh, a group of vulnerabilities in one particular um section of the open source code that everybody uses uh, I, I everybody in quotes because most people use sure um and they reported it to the uh all the appropriate folks and it got and it was put under proper security embargo because mm-hmm. it's a vulnerability that could be used by bad guys potentially we didn't there was no proof of concept there was no actual um attack against it but it was um you know something that was potentially an issue. Um, the Tianacore InfoSec team looked at it, said, yep, we need to work on that. It's definitely broken. Uh, and it's an open source volunteer group 
So it took a while to find the right people to the code owners to uh, take on fixing that those related vulnerabilities in that one particular code path. Um, as usual, um, the security folks, the researchers that found the problem, um, they want to get their kudos. They want to do the thing. They're motivated to get out there and say, look how clever we are. We found this and we reported it and we did it the proper way. We notified the right people and, um, and we gave them like 90 days. So they're going public in 90 days with this. And uh, the problem was, of course, finding someone to fix it. Mm getting it fixed in the source code, testing it thoroughly in at the open source code level, then it needs to get handed off to the firmware vendors. Uh, the firmware vendors need to pull it into their code base, um, test it, make sure they didn't break anything, then roll it out to the uh, ODMs and ODMs. They need to pull it into their code base. Then they need to build firmware images for thousands of at least hundreds and probably thousands of different machines, SKUs, because it's in everything. Mm -hmm. So they need to develop uh, um, firmware updates for thousands of different machines across the industry. Um, and they, those need to get pushed out to customers or customers need to go find them or whatever the possibility is. Um, and it's going to be probably another six months after the bugs are fixed and tested before a reasonable amount of people start getting the updates in all these machines. But probably, I'm guessing, I have no stats on it, but probably only half of the people out there in the world with machines that are affected will actually update their firmware. Yeah. So millions and millions and millions of computers out there will be potentially vulnerable to this. But probably six months before even they have a chance to install the fixes, they um, the guys were going to go to a, um, a conference and describe in gory detail the, the bugs they found. And so all of the guys out there in the bad guy, black hat world, and I'm talking black, black, black hats, not, not the conference, but the bad guys, mm will have at least six months for zero day. And probably because we don't make it really easy for everybody to do firmware updates and, and explain to people why it's important to keep their firmware updated, then there are going to be millions and millions of machines that have the potential of zero day attacks. And this is what really scares me and the thing we need to fix. So it's we, it's, we it's interesting. This... I want to talk about earlier in the, the stage uh, where the reference implementation is vulnerable and then it has to be fixed by all the ODMs and OEMs um, and then they have to push it out. That's different from most other types of software, Dick, right? I mean, you've been doing software Absolutely. for a long time. I, I think it's different. Like Microsoft can push out a Windows update. If there's an open source library, it gets fixed and we, we update our Linux systems. That process seems... a a little easier, maybe a lot easier Absolutely. than firmware, right? The problem we have here is the, um, you know, if I've got, if I'm an app developer, you know, and I don't want to use anybody's name, but just, you know, as even as a, as a good example, but you know, if I'm an app developer and somebody reports a potential vulnerability in my software, I can fix it and push it out 
uh, to customers as an update immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's software as a service kind of thing, it's on the web, I can right. just you know, take down the current version and put up a new one a few minutes later. Um, it, you can fix it in a matter of minutes. But firmware, on the other hand, is tied to the hardware, and we have we've gotten better. Used to be that you had to just periodically go to your OEM's website and realize, oh my goodness, there's a firmware update. Download it, install it. Came up with all these scary messages, and occasionally, if you did something wrong or the OEM did something wrong, you bricked your machine, and you mm -hmm. were, you know, and so it was really scary, etc. Well, now the in the linux world uh, the linux firmware update service is pushing out stuff to, to people and windows update is pushing out to windows users etc uh, but that still only covers probably less than half of the people will accept those firmware updates right well yeah the other, I, the even what i what i love is, is i was just gonna say with zenbleed it came from my linux distribution as part of the kernel and it applied the, um, the micro code update and, and fixed Zenbleed. I was like, oh, that's really nice. I mean, it's not going to happen all the time, and, but that's one use case where it does work very nicely. But when we talk about UEFI and those components and that firmware being updated, it's a laborious process. Well, um, but also, hold on, one before you get to Scott, I also want to make sure we hit on, uh, and I want Dick's answer to this question, why do you think people are not applying the UEFI updates to their PCs, I guess two parts, one in the enterprise and one for consumers. Enterprise is has much better generally, mm -hmm. uh, but they generally delay because they're afraid that, um, that the firmware update is liable to mess up a machine. It rarely yeah. does, but it, it it's not impossible, so they want to test first, just like they delay you know updates from right. their um, their OS vendor. It's operational risk, but, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's definitely a risk there. End users, it's both they don't get the word, mm. or they're, they're just scared. Um, we've been always. You know, every time you do a firmware update, you get those scary messages of, "Don't unplug your computer. Don't turn off your computer." Yeah. You, you know, scary. Uh, yeah. And uh, and it, there is a history there um, yeah. where people who've been in the industry for a while have have always had some experience, or their neighbor has had an experience, or whatever, a coworker where they did a firmware update and it was a disaster. Right. Uh, those rarely happen anymore, but. It's not impossible, mm. and, but that's why people don't install them. Scott, I was just gonna pile on with uh, with the example you gave was a good example of Zenbleed, but on the flip side, you have something like Black Lotus, where Microsoft can push and revoke the certs for those vulnerable bootloaders that that malware campaign used. But what they're not able to fix is the underlying vulnerability in secure boot that was exploded, exploited for the first time in the history of secure boot in you know two decades, where you now have this vulnerability called baton drop that effectively becomes almost a forever day to the extent an attacker can bring an arbitrary vulnerable bootloader to with them to the attack. So now as long as you can do that and you're ahead of Microsoft's ability to revoke. Um, then you're able to bypass secure boot. And I, I feel like the industry still hasn't kind of got their head around the idea kind of to both of your guys' points that this is not a patch Tuesday situation, right? That you can, you can revoke via that method. That's awesome. Um, and it might help in the short term against a certain campaign, 
but now you have red lotus now you have black lotus being written in rust you, you know there's going to be go versions of this and baton drop as a vulnerability in secure boot itself architecturally that's not going away anytime soon right and that's the kind of the problem we have to worry about talk about a long tail yeah i i i'm not an expert on baton drop specifically and uh i've generally you know have said that um we haven't had many um uh vulnerabilities that are driven from the specification. They're usually poor implementation. This is one where, you know, that crosses over a little bit. Um, and, but um, it can be mitigated in firmware. So a firmware update um, can make this go away. But uh, um, yeah, again, I don't want to speak out of turn on it because I'm not an expert on that particular one. That was brought up to me by the by the guy from CISA, um, Jonathan Spring, um, just a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about Black Lotus and revocations and stuff. And he said, "But baton drop," <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I need to study up on that one a little bit more." So yeah, well, you, you nailed it, and it's questions. all to your point that even if there is a firmware update for it, it's got to be across all vendors, all implementations, all models. So yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah and, and that's exactly the problem with the 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 one that I mentioned that I used in my long example. There is exactly the same issue. Is it applies to pretty much every machine that exists on the internet that uses you know typical um, UEFI stand, um, conforming firmware. It's it probably affects you know, at least 95% of the machines out there right now. And, and they're going to talk about it in early December. And you know that um, those machines are not going to be patched, even though patches are available. It's got to funnel through that long supply chain that we just described. Just in time for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think also, Dick, we uh, have to talk about the operating system vendors being part of this, a piece to the puzzle, right? Because now our conversation is kind of going to that. And certainly we've seen the Windows platform binary table be used, uh, which was supposed to be a legitimate usage in a standardized way for UEFI and the operating system to communicate with each other. Uh, but it it also, you know, gets abused uh, as well. So what's it what's it like to, from a security perspective, working with different operating system vendors, right? Um. I, I, it's very, um, it's a, it's a good collaboration at this point. We're all working towards the same goal, um, and we're trying to speed up the process. Um, so, um, I haven't had any difficulties at all dealing with uh, OS vendors. Um, uh, um, the Linux foundation has been a member of UEFI for many years and, um, and even, even though they're not one of the founding members of the organization, Red Hat has a representative on our security response team. Uh, for that sort of is acts as a, a a point of contact into the whole distro world out there. Uh, but you know, we, we at every every event we have where we do testing, and um, you know, the, the the event we had two weeks ago where we did a lot of de developer conference and plug fest testing environment. Uh, we had Microsoft and, you know, and some of the Linux vendors, et cetera. Um, we were testing the, the, the Black Lotus 
uh, revocations and new keys and that kind of thing um, on all the machines present. So um, it's it's a uh, um, collaborative environment. I don't see any negativity there at all. Yeah, that's good. Because I, I mean, I think as we established, everyone's got to work together if we're to fix, especially the security problems uh, that we're sure. trying to address, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's I, I haven't found, uh, honestly, it's usually a resource issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we know about something we need to work on or um, secure or whatever, and everybody's got tight budgets and, um, and, you know, and engineers are actively working on new features and stuff. And, and it's, it's some security is sometimes seen at, um, at least vulnerability management going back into code is seen as, oh, I don't want to do that. It's, that's the old stuff. I want to work on all the new flashy stuff. Mm. Uh, so uh, getting resources assigned to work on stuff can be a challenge in open source communities and in, in, um, in specification groups, et cetera. Is there a, uh, I mean, does the skills kind of gap or it's hard to find people to work on this stuff, I would imagine. There's only so many people in the world that are working on UEFI in this firmware level code, correct? Is that is that still an issue? It's a small community. Um, mm-hmm. at, the, at the event uh, last week, it was it was a lot of this, the same players uh, that were present in the room, but many of them work for different companies now. It was kind yeah. of old home. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody shifts around from one company to another, but it's the same faces all the time. Uh, but that's not entirely true. Uh, we're bringing up um, you know, new people into the field all the time, hiring new folks and converting engineers that have been doing product development into the security space. And and I think an important part of it that you mentioned in your intro of me uh, is I spent 10 years as a college professor teaching mm-hmm. computer science, upper division of you know, undergraduate work. And I thought, and I feel today that Teaching security issues is an incredibly important part of the university experience. Um, you know, teaching the mentality of security and secure by default, and uh, and you know, general secure by design um, approaches to software development and firmware development is critically important. And we're doing a bit of that, but I think we could do more. Mm. Agreed. Um, Dick, anything else you want to uh, evangelize uh, for our audience uh, today? I think um, that uh, we need more input on this S-bomb thing I've been talking about. Mm. Uh, uh, Right now, it's a relatively small group of folks, and I would really love to get more people involved um, uh, in, in... since we're not developing specifications as such, we're really kind of developing guidance for the industry, participating both at our level at the um, UEFI forum, and also CISA has four work, four or five working groups on S bomb delivery and format and et cetera, tools, et cetera. Um, engaging at that level would be critically important for folks. And those are all open. Anybody can join in. Just um, 
go to the CISA website. And if you're uh, any kind of member of UEFI, if you're in interested even at the opter level, since we aren't talking specifications at this point, um, there's no intellectual property issues and those kinds of things. Uh, we can invite people to join us. Fantastic. Uh, well, Dick, thank you so much for uh, appearing on the show today. Uh, and that will conclude this episode of Below the Surface. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.